for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. You're listening to The Ozzy Cossack on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to The Ozzy Cossack Show, broadcasting on a Saturday Night Live uh, for you uh, from the Russian consulate. The final hour, we're going up until midnight tonight, a marathon episode. Tell me, let me know what you think in the comments section or give us a call anytime now. Uh, from now until the next 55 minutes on 1-800-670-310 from Australia. Uh, colleague of ours, a, a journalist from the Russia Today uh, group, his name is Shay Bowles, and he is an interesting character. He addressed the United Nations. Um, he is described as a scholar specializing in small arms and munition. He addressed the United Nations uh, earlier this year. He described a frenzied, incalculable, loosely regulated flood of weapons into Ukraine and said that NATO planners and their political funders in an ever hawkish Anglosphere were driving the seemingly perpetual escalation of military aid to Ukraine. Joining us now on the line, live from Moscow, is Shay Bowers. Welcome to TNT Radio, Shay. Great to be here. You've been quite outspoken uh, previously. Uh, you've uh, spoken on the you know highest level, uh, addressing the United Nations on the issue of uh, the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Uh, your uh, a thesis uh, about uh, the prospective peace deal agreed back in June to end the conflict, uh, where you commented on that. Uh, uh, you noticed that yesterday uh, the Ukrainians confirmed this as true, that the uh, Russians were ready to have peace way back in June. I mean, that's way back in June. It was really before the counteroffensive. So Ukraine and NATO had an opportunity to stop the conflict. They would have saved at least 100,000 Ukrainians would not have died. Uh, what's your view and who is pushing the Ukrainians to continue this war? Yeah, well, I mean, the actual peace deal was brokered that was agreed was back in April of last year, basically. Uh, yeah, so it would have been in April and it was brokered in Turkey, in Istanbul. This is when the main force of the Russian military was outside Kiev. It was, people were saying, why have they stopped outside Kiev at this huge five kilometer long armored column. If you remember that period when they stopped, they stopped moving. And apparently this was part of a negotiation that was going on uh, in Turkey. It was brokered with the assistance of Naftali Bennett, the uh, Israeli prime minister at the time, uh, or an ex-Israeli prime minister, Naftali Bennett, and uh, Tayyip Erdogan as well. So what we heard yesterday was, and back in June of last year, Vladimir Putin produced at, at, a, at I think it was an African nation summit. Vladimir Putin produced the actual document that was up for signature, if you like, to decide, you know, to end this conflict before it really began, if you like, this really bloody, gruesome phase began. And he produced that at a, at a press conference. And I had previously written about, uh, from a source that I had, that Johnson had come to uh, Kiev in the middle of these negotiations and told Volodymyr Zelensky that he was to immediately disengage from the peace process and to continue fighting, that that NATO would cover him, that the British and the Americans would fund it. And there's also plausible sources that say that, uh, obviously, that Johnson, Boris Johnson, that 
per, you know, perennial uh, buffoon, uh, had blundered into this uh, peace uh, negotiation, which had been agreed, we now know, potentially, uh, and stopped it. He, he'd scuppered the peace deal by telling Zelensky, you need to walk away from this, you need to keep fighting, you can beat the Russians, they don't have the resources, they don't have the men, you can win. So he basically stepped in, he stopped peace. Uh, but what's interesting about Arhamia's uh, interview yesterday in the Ukrainian media is number one, why was it given? Why would he accept and admit? What when I wrote about it back in uh, June or previously, uh, again, people said, "Oh, this is insane. This is not true. This is more Russian disinformation, Russian propaganda," which was yesterday proven as absolutely true. He also went into some detail, Simeon, about what the Russians wanted, which is just as equally as uh, interesting. And basically, what Russia wanted was Ukraine to be a neutral country, not to join NATO and and basically maintain its links with Russia and Europe, no problem, not to join uh, NATO, to be a neutral state, uh, not posing a threat, an existential threat on the border of, of, uh, of Russia. And of course, since 2014, the NATO had made basically Ukraine a de, a de facto NATO member. They built a quarter of a million man army in Ukraine. You call it a, pro a proxy, a proxy NATO member. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, in all ways, the one who, these were NATO trained troops, training 10,000 men a year. Uh, great scholars like uh, John Mearsheimer have outlined this. Uh, and great powers don't tolerate existential threats to their existence on their borders, no more than the United States would, China. They certain, the, the, the United States wouldn't tolerate a huge buildup of Russian or Chinese-trained troops in Mexico on the border who are engaged in a punitive operation against English-speaking Americans uh, on the borders of, of the United States. They wouldn't tolerate it for five minutes. The 82nd Airborne would be slap-bang in the middle of Mexico City within 24 hours, in my view. So the idea that Russia was going to tolerate that buildup of troops was ludicrous anyway in, in great power politics, in, in, in the, the idea of realist politic, uh, you know, geopolitical thinking. It was never going to be tolerated by the Russians. But they tried and tried and tried, in my view, to broker some sort of solution to this. And another interesting factor about Arhamia's speech is it basically absolutely validates my assertion that there was no great battle of Kiev. The Ukrainian media and the Western media tried to suggest that the Russian army was defeated at Kiev, driven back. They turned around and left as part of a goodwill gesture to show that they were willing to uh, to withdraw, that this wasn't a conflict against uh, the Ukrainian people. It wasn't. It was a conflict to de-escalate a potential conflict, if you like. It was actually an act of self-defense in many ways. Well, that's how the Americans would be portraying it, as they're portraying the wholesale murder of tens of thousands of civilians in Gaza. Now, this is self-defense, according to them. But what Russia did when it intervened in, uh, uh, in, in 2022, in February 2022, and it set out their stall very eagerly, want to denazify Ukraine. And of course, we were told there was no Nazis in Ukraine. Now we know that's absolutely untrue. There's a significant far-right Nazi element with a disproportionate influence on the on the current uh, government. Uh, significant. We know that because we've seen we've seen it. We've seen the uh, the influence of these guys. And I think they also held a sway in some regards uh, into the because these were the bedrock, if you like, when people like um, John McCain came to the United States, uh, came to Ki uh, Kiev in during the Maidan, which we've seen just a 10 year uh, you know, uh, anniversary of this week. 
when we saw him coming, uh, you know, these these are people who propagated and stimulated the far right, the extreme far right, which were a very, very small group in Ukraine, basically confined to uh, Western Ukraine, Lvov, Ivano-Frankivsk, and these kind of areas, which had traditionally supported people like Stepan Bandera, and, uh, you know, a, a, a detailed and well uh, sort of uh, known mass murderer, neo-Nazi, who had prosecuted with his friends like Roman Chukhevich, these radical uh, neo-Nazis, founded Naktigal Battalion, fought, you know, supported the 14th Galician SS, some, one of which was celebrated in the Canadian Parliament. These guys were exploited by the CIA as, as far back as 1946 and 47, the CIA started to send aid to these people to destabilize the Ukrainian SSR as it was then. They always knew that if they could fund and inflame and exacerbate this small group, that they would be very, very uh, aggressive and anti-Russian. And they've been supporting them for years. So the idea that the the Maidan, oh, the CIA was behind the Maidan, you say, oh, that's not true. We know it's true. We heard Victoria Newland, uh, the then uh, Assistant Secretary of State, I think, talking with Jeffrey Pyatt, the, the, uh, the then uh, ambassador to Ukraine, picking the government, selecting who would be the next prime minister, uh, the, who the next ministers would be. And of course, they say, we would never do that. But there was a phone call released very famous and she very famously said F the EU in it when there was concerns raised about what would the EU about to think about this and Victoria Newton very famously said well F, F the EU we don't we don't care what the EU thinks so that was the culmination of decades of American attempts to destabilize and pull Ukraine away from uh, uh, the influence and the economic sphere and the geostrategic sphere of Russia and what we've seen now uh, with people like Johnson coming, and we now know this is documented. This is coming from David Ahamia. This is not coming from a Russian source, a European source, a, a Russian uh, a journalist working in Russia with an objective dissenting view like me. This isn't, uh, but although I wrote about it and was called, I was told it was all Russian propaganda. Now it's been completely vilified, uh, you know, uh, while it was vilified then, it's been completely now verified. And uh, in my view, it shows that this is a long-term project of the West to destabilize Ukraine. They don't care about the Ukrainian people. If they cared about the Ukrainian people in the West, there wouldn't be hundreds of thousands of young Ukrainian men under the ground this Christmas. If they cared about Ukraine, they would have seized the opportunity for peace on the practical basis. We know that the people in eastern Ukraine, having exercised their democratic mandate, didn't want to be part of a new uh, right-wing nationalistic Ukraine. They didn't want to do that. They didn't want to become part of Russia either. They were happy to remain Ukrainian in their in their in their in their citizenship, if you like. But they wanted their language, their culture, their history preserved. And in any other sense, in any other theater, uh, geostrategically, America and NATO would have stepped in to defend the rights of these people for independence, as they did in Serbia. Suddenly, the uh, in Kosovo. Without any sort of uh, legal process, the Kosovans are allowed to establish their own country because they don't. They they say we're Muslim, we're Kosovan, we're Albanian, and the international community completely backs them. You can pick dozens of cases where the West has anointed uh, minority groups for assistance. For example, the Uyghurs in China. You know, this there's a genocide against them. But when it comes to ethnic Russians who by an accident to history were left outside the protection of the Soviet Union when it was either, whatever way you want to look at it, collapsed or uh, destroyed uh, in 91. 
these there was a, there were millions of Russians left outside of the protection of the Soviet Union in numerous post-Soviet republics. And I don't think we've seen the end of the problems that could potentially occur in places like Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia with these uh, significant minorities of Russians who are now being oppressed, treated horrendously, their rights are being uh, taken from them, much as they were in Ukraine. And remember, the whole genesis and the whole rationale, the whole engine of this war in Ukraine is a civil war, a civil war caused by a CIA uh, planned, anointed, funded, and we know the granular detail the CIA had in organizing the groups on Maidan. For example, I wrote a piece this week, Simeon, about uh, these snipers that apparently killed 100 protesters. Uh, we know that there is evidence that these snipers weren't working for the Berkut, the the then Ukrainian uh, secret police. We know that there's evidence that these people are shot in the back from positions behind them, from their own positions. We heard the Estonian uh, uh, foreign minister uh, talking in a phone call again with an e, uh, Catherine Ashton, an EU official, saying, we believe that these people were shot by the Maidan protesters. We don't believe that Yanukovych had uh, ordered his men to open fire because they hadn't opened fire. This was uh, an open attempt to inflame and, and push for the overthrow of a, of, a, of a democratic government. It doesn't matter what you think of Viktor Yanukovych's government. It doesn't matter if you think he was corrupt. It's, it's irrelevant. The British government is corrupt. The Irish government has a problem with corruption. Corruption is in most uh, countries, if you want to focus in on it. But it, what's remarkable is, is that the forces of democracy and freedom who have, you know, paraded themselves around the globe the United States, for example, at the engine of all this, killing over 30 million civilians in the process since the end of the Second World War. This brand of freedom was always going to arrive anywhere it could be uh, wedged in to inflict a strategic defeat on Russia. And the big problem now is, Simeon, it's completely backfired. I don't think for a minute that they believed when they stimulated this civil war with the Maidan, and this is what it was, it was a civil war erupted when the peoples of uh, Crimea, Donbass, Lugansk, uh, those very tough communities said, oh, no, not for us. We don't want to end up like the people who were burned alive in the Union Hall in Odessa while Ukrainian uh, forces stood back and watched it happen. And in some instances, assisted in this massacre in Odessa. That was the pinch point and the turning point for this civil war. And a civil war did erupt. And there's a huge effort in the West. And particularly in Western media, suggests that Russia stimulated this uh, uh, re revolution or revolt against this new illegal regime in, in Ukraine. But of course, that isn't the case at all. It never happened. The Russians didn't intervene in 2014 to any extent. And many there, many in uh, the new territories in Russia, as they're called, wish they had have done. Uh, they didn't. But they did intervene in, tw in 2022. But the world begins in February 24th. Uh, uh, 2022 now for all of these analysts, these people who suggest that they, they know what's happening in Ukraine. It's just like the war, the history began in Israel and Gaza on October 7th, when Gaza poured uh, through a hole in a fence, uh, which is essentially a, a human zoo created by the Israelis over decades. Uh, what do you expect those people to do when they pour through the fence? Uh, cut your grass, make you a cake. It's the very same in, in Ukraine. After oppressing and repressing uh, uh, the Russian uh, communities, if you like, and the peoples in Donbass, who, again, didn't want to be uh, part of Russia. They were happy to be Ukrainian, but they wanted their rights and privileges as ethnic Russians respected. 
Uh, and you've seen all this punitive behavior by the Kiev regime under Zelensky, banning the opposition, uh, banning the Russian language, although most Ukrainians still speak Russian. I know a lot of Ukrainians living here in Russia, I know hundreds of them, they all speak Russian. Most combat troops on the front lines are still speaking Russian. This is a, f a fake ideology which is created to create some sort of validity to a very insipid and dangerous nationalism, which openly adopts and uh, portrays uh, Nazism and the allegiance with this Nazi ideology uh, as a reflection of, 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 of Ukrainian nationalism, which is absolutely insane. So that's really where we are. And I think where you, when you look at Boris Johnson, this this prime minister who used Ukraine, remember, to deflect from his own horrendous uh, political, uh, calamitous political situation in the UK. He was constantly in Kiev while he was under investigation in, in, in the UK on corruption stuff, you know, using state money to wallpaper his apartment, all this really messy stuff. He was straight on the plane to Ukraine, persistently in Ukraine, because he thought, I can get a win out of this. But he, in my view, has a central role to play in in sort of saying and in apportioning responsibility for what's happened now to Ukraine. It's, and in my view, Ukraine is now a failed state economically. I don't think it's even a democracy anymore. And I said that recently this week because they won't hold elections anymore. But what you see is the United States and Europe propping up a country which has all the signs and symptoms of needing intervention. Uh, if it was an African country, if it was a Middle Eastern country, if it was uh, Serbia, Russia, China, anywhere else, if they had banned elections, if they had mass corruption, if they were oppressing a minority, if they were jailing journalists, the Americans would invade that country to enforce regime change. And Absolutely. when it comes to Ukraine, they're propping it up. Because for one reason and one reason only is because it's strategically important to Russia. There's a lot of Russian people there. And the line where Ukraine ends and Russia begins, take it from me living in, in, in Russia for a year now, the line where these two cultures, two peoples, <coughs> begins and ends, it's very difficult to, to ascertain at all. Jay Bells uh, from Moscow. Look, I can't say that I disagree with anything uh, that you've just uh uh, sum summarized there, uh, Che. You're exactly spot on in every single thing that you've said. I listened very intently. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a independent uh, journalist, an independent journalist from Ireland, a person who doesn't have any reason to be biased or to particularly take the Russian side, even though now he does work for Russia today. I can see why he works for Russia today, because uh, he explains it perfectly, exactly what's been going on in the Ukraine. Uh, but don't go away. Stay with us. We're going to return to Che Bow's Live from Moscow on the other side of this break, you're listening to TNT Radio. You should hear what Patrick Henningsen's talking about. So the Israelis are really escalating air attacks and bombing attacks uh, to a degree that we haven't even seen before. Why this escalation? Why is it happening right now? This is a big problem. And this has been going on now for four weeks, ladies and gentlemen. And still no calls for a ceasefire, no definitive or categorical calls anyway from the U.S. leadership, from those who, from the onset, let's face it, they were backing this military action by Israel uh, on the Gaza Strip. And everybody thought, well, how bad could it be? How long could it go? Here we are a month later. We're still here. We're still talking to you. We're still reporting this. And another hospital was uh, hit last night as well. Well over 30 medical facilities and hospitals have been uh, hit and uh, taken out of action. In some cases, pulverized by the Israeli occupation forces or the IDF as it's uh, widely known. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. The Lights is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. 
No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours, where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk If you're still wearing a cloth or a surgical mask around in public, you're guilty of spreading COVID misinformation. It really is that simple. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Saturday Night Live uh, with the Aussie Cossack on TNT Radio, joined by uh, a colleague of ours, an ideological ally, uh, Shay Bowes, RT correspondent. Uh, from Moscow uh, with an excellent uh, thesis, a uh, background and an insight into the origins uh, of the Ukrainian conflict, uh, particularly uh, you're correct about the attempts to make peace. I mean, it looks like the Western powers, NATO actually forbade uh, Ukraine to make peace. We can rewind right to the very beginning when indeed Russian troops were outside Kiev and uh, in the northern regions. Uh, there there were attempts already then to make peace but it looks like nato forced ukraine to fight and nato forced ukraine uh to commit its men its uh its youth civilians you know those scenes of handing out ak-47s to civilians in kiev and then flooding the place with weapons and nato calculated well we don't mind how many ukrainians die as long as we somehow uh slow down the russians and that's uh, the essence of this conflict, that Russia did not anticipate or calculate uh, uh, that NATO would step into the war. They did not expect that to be, uh, you could say, stabbed in the back, because NATO many times have done uh, similar interventions or military operations all around the world. And Russia has never you know, intervened, with the exception of, of course, Syria, but they were invited there by the legitimate Syrian government. Libya, the Americans did whatever they wanted to. Afghanistan, the Americans did whatever they wanted to. And all these other conflicts around the world. So in this situation, I mean, I think if it wasn't for the false hope and the really the coercion that the Ukrainian regime was subjugated to uh, in uh, late February, early March 2022, uh, the special military operation could have been over quite quickly. And Zelensky, I believe, at that time, in the, in the first days, was actually evacuated out of Kiev, and he was doing press conferences from a bunker in Poland, or Lvov, at the very minimum, in western Ukraine. And they forced him back into Kiev. They forced him over there, and they said, do your job, you're an actor, act like a leader, act like a president, and at least pretend to put up some type of resistance. And of course, that did not suit the NATO narrative at all, and here we are uh, with explosive uh, revelations that uh, Russia many times offered Ukraine uh, an opportunity to stop the fighting. And since June, when that was even in writing confirmed now by the Russian president, he demonstrated that document, that in June that offer was on the table, it was knocked back. What can we learn out of all of this? That any blood that's been spilt throughout this period, especially from June onwards, is directly the fault of NATO. They simply don't care how many Ukrainians die, Shay, do they? Well, this is a absolutely critical point and if you look at this much vaunted if you cast your mind back let's go back six months seven months to this huge western media 
uh, operation to tell us that uh, Ukraine was about to launch a massive, uh, they even talked about a million-man army, this huge NATO-funded army was going to smash into the Russian lines, power towards the Sea of Azov, uh, you know, past Tokmak. They even published their uh, apparent battle plan, which is insane, insanity. I mean, the first thing about this whole Ukrainian counteroffensive, which, in my view, was actually carried out in the end because of a political prerogative, not for a military one. And there's two reasons I'd say that. And I've studied you know, military uh, strategy. I've done a master's degree in uh, strategic studies. So I can talk about this with a little bit of authority and say there's no way any NATO commander would have embarked on that assault against a prepared echelon defense, the likes of what we haven't seen uh, probably since the First World War anywhere on mainland Europe. There's no way, absolutely no way, a Dutch, German, Italian, French, British commander would have dispatched his troops across these vast minefields into these prepared echelon defences with no air superiority, with no artillery superiority, with terribly trained troops in second-rate NATO cast-off uh, equipment. Uh, you know, they talk about, oh, we're going to send under 20 tanks to Ukraine. 20 tanks. This is a thousand mile, or a thousand kilometre long front. Uh, this is the biggest movement of men and material on the European continent since uh, the Second World War. This is a real combined arms conflict. And to send these young men pulled off the streets in some cases, um, given a couple of weeks training in the UK, where the feedback from the uh, NATO uh, uh, trainers has been that they're dire, they're very poorly trained troops. The average age right now, by the way, of a Ukrainian soldier is in his mid-40s, where a combat soldier should be in his uh, early 20s to be at his physical peak. So the idea that this counteroffensive was ever going to work was absolutely ludicrous and toxic, but it was peddled and, uh, uh, you know, purposefully uh, highlighted and, and bigged up, if you like, by the Western media for a political uh, uh, prerogative because it was never going to win. The Russians knew it wasn't going to happen, and that's why people say, well, why didn't the Russians go on the counteroffensive at that time? Well, Napoleon very famously said, never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. So the Russians were happy to let the Ukrainians come onto their defences and destroy their army. And, the, and probably 100,000 men now have died in the counteroffensive alone, uh, which is a tragedy. It's a tragedy, but it's a cynical tragedy. As I say, no NATO commander would have allowed his troops to uh, sacrifice themselves, thrown themselves onto these defences. But they were more than happy to allow the Ukrainian people to wave goodbye to their sons, husbands, fathers, uncles. And in some cases now, women are being found on the front lines in Ukraine in this desperate need to peddle this idea that we're still moving forward. It's just absolutely from a strategic, from any objective strategic observer looking at what's happening in Ukraine. There's just no way that Ukraine can win a military conflict with Russia. It's just simply impossible. Given that it's some somewhat now of a war of attrition with Russia's vast continental landmass, huge resources, a military-industrial complex in Russia now with over two million people working in it. In some cases, twenty-four hours a day, producing tanks, weapons, missiles, drones, in scales that are unimaginable. Uh, so have, haven't been the, seen since the Soviet days. And of course, and but the interesting thing, Simeon, is uh, Russia's Soviet doctrine, artillery doctrine in its military has really been so central to the defeat of these waves of, of Ukrainians as well. The idea that Russia had such a wealth and such a vast depth of artillery uh, 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 
supremacy of Ukraine and NATO. And remember, NATO has now demilitarized itself. If Russia and NATO were to begin a land war now, Russia, they wouldn't have a chance, particularly with China, Chinese manufacturing and potentially China, Chinese military alliance with Russia. And the Americans and the Europeans know that what, what's happened in Ukraine has been a grotesque military and strategic failure for them. They wanted to in inflict a, a strategic failure on Russia, but what they've done is they've demilitarized their own uh, um, uh, military industrial complex and base. And we know that because they've said that. They said, we've no shells left. That's why we're going to send banned cluster munitions, basically, to the Ukrainians, because we're out of everything else. Joe Biden foolishly said the same thing out loud. He said, we don't, we're, out of, we're out of shells. We're out of them. The, you, the Russians are using more shells and ammunition in a month than... And the whole European continent produces in a year, in some cases, in some calibers. Yeah, and the, and the Russians, Russians are back. Society. The Russians are now back up to using more than twenty-five thousand shells a day, and the Ukrainians are in shock. Yeah. and I mean, and I course, don't want to. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and of course now Russia as well is excelling in uh, creating the new technology, this new war, things like the Lancet. Uh, the scalpel, these new uh, systems, which are autonomous now. The latest version of the Russian Lancet, which is a loitering munition, looks like something out of Star Wars. So basically, it's launched from the ground by a team. It can loiter in the air. And this new latest edition of, of the Lancet can actually identify a target itself. It's autonomous. It's got artificial intelligence, which can scan the ground, pick an enemy target, an artillery piece, a tank, uh, an APC, and strike it itself. They can also talk to each other. If they if several are launched at the same time, they can uh, work together to target different groups. I mean, this is remarkable uh, technology. And again, remember this as well, Simeon, this is technology in a country where Ursula von der Leyen had said she was going to turn the economy to tatters. She was going to destroy that, that the Russians were taking uh, um, microchips from washing machines, microwaves. I mean, this is just insanity. Believe me, I've traveled all over Russia in the last year. I've been in Vostochny to see them building a new Cosmodrome to launch these huge Angara rockets, which can carry massive payloads out through the orbit. I've seen these things launch. I've seen it. I've been there up close. I haven't seen any infrastructure project like that anywhere in Europe uh, in decades. I don't even. I couldn't even tell you which, which one. They're talking about now building a tunnel with the Chinese to Crimea. Everywhere you look in Moscow, there's huge building. There's right beside my apartment, they just opened a new metro. They're opening metro stations. They're, the Russian economy is strong and healthy, particularly indigenously, because people have turned to themselves. Innovation, like, of course, necessity is the mother of invention. So there's a hugely vibrant domestic economy now in Russia. The ruble is recovering some of its value it lost. Uh, inflation is under control. Full employment here in Russia. And there's absolutely nothing I can't get here within 10 minutes from my phone uh, that I can get in, the, in in Europe or the US. Absolutely nothing. You want a Coke? You want to eat your favorite chocolate? Whatever you want, you can get it here. It's very simple. The war on Russia, this econo-cultural and military war on Russia has absolutely failed. And it's really now about how the West tries to reverse out of this. How do they try to back out without looking like they've been, they've been inflicted a strategic defeat on themselves, remember, which is remarkable. You're absolutely right. Look, I can't say that I disagree with anything you've said. Uh, uh, I get this feeling when I used to watch uh, Vladimir Zelenovsky's speeches, and I used to listen to him and say, <laughs> yep, I agree with everything. So I've had that feeling deja vu now. Everything you've said, I've been uh, handling. My wife, my wife, my wife says I'm like Zelenovsky. I won't shut up, she says. you got to shut up. You sound like Zelenovsky. 
I said, it's not such a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Look, uh, you're exactly right. And the state of the Russian military at the moment, the Russian military has never been stronger. In fact, this mm. special military operation, if Russia was allowed to just quietly achieve its goals, demilitarize and denazify uh, those regions and uh, protect the Russian population, uh, Russia would have been much weaker because we wouldn't have uh, realized uh, uh, those technological advancements which have now uh, been opened up to Russia. Russia was basically forced into improving its military to the point where it is now a state of the art. No country in the world has the type of anti-drone systems, the the amount of anti-drone systems. Like you said, the front line is more than a thousand kilometers wrong, along. It's the biggest front line anyone's ever seen since 1945. And Russia is defending that successfully up against the brains and brunt and the military industrial complexes of about 50 countries. Again, Russia, as it always has every 20 to 30 years throughout history, is fighting a coalition of dozens and dozens of countries. And Russia's holding the line. In fact, they're holding line in a way where in previous conflicts, there were no rules. There were no rules. Russia mm-hmm. imposed on itself certain rules. So if you could say it's fighting with one hand tied behind its back. And I was on the Crimean radio yesterday talking about this, that Russian troops are sacrificing themselves. The Russian government is allowing uh, its troops, its men to die rather than allow Ukrainian civilians to die. And why I say that, if we look at the Israel-Palestine conflict, Israel doesn't want to lose its men. Israel doesn't want to lose its men. So Israel takes priority over its men and says, why should we risk losing our men walking into villages and cities and going from house to house? Let's just carpet bomb everything and then walk through and clean it up like the Americans do. Now, the Russians have never, ever allowed themselves to carpet bomb one Ukrainian city ever anywhere. The only time these Ukrainian cities get ruined and damaged is when, for example, in Mariupol, for example, in uh, uh, other cities where the Ukrainians themselves, for example, in Bakhmut, Atomovsk, the Ukrainians themselves decide to turn these cities into fortress garrisons and every single building, every basement, every house and a school and a hospital is actually a Ukrainian firing position. So they turn the cities into battle zones. Russia has never... Uh, turned the city into a battle zone. In fact, Putin's words are very clear on the Israel-Gaza um, conflict. And when he said this, I knew he meant it. He said, leave the women and children out of it. If the men want to fight, let them fight mm-hmm. as men. So the Russian military is demonstrating a certain type of chivalry, a certain type of honor and dignity and military tradition. Uh, and uh, why is the reason? Why is Russia uh, risking its own men? Because we never considered the Ukrainians enemies to begin with. We consider very them- important. Yes, consider them as temporarily blindsided, temporarily confused uh, younger brothers or sisters, uh, you know, Malarosi, the little little Russians, we call them. And mm-hmm. they're temporarily being overtaken when there was never this animosity before. Now, this, this yeah, and in Russia, in Moscow here, when you're when you're in Russia, it's something I tell people in the West, and I do a lot of media telling people, you know, what, how it is here. I mean, not far from here is a beautiful uh, uh, metro station called Kievskaya. You've got the Kievskaya Hotel. You've got Russian and Ukrainian cultures everywhere. It's represented everywhere. In in Russia here, uh, somebody with a Ukrainian passport can come here and access free healthcare, all the assistances of the state. If if Russia was carrying out this fake genocide and this 
pogrom or this uh, punitive war against Ukraine, the millions of Ukrainians that live here, millions of them. I work with people who consider themselves Ukrainian. Every day I work with them. They say, well, I'm Ukrainian or my mother's Ukrainian, my my my, my grandmother's Ukrainian. They, they have absolutely no animosity towards the Russian people. This is a, a, a no, and, and the Russian people, I, I can tell you in absolute honesty, I haven't met a single native Russian here who said they hate Ukraine or Ukrainians. I've never met anybody like that. And if somebody like that said something like that in company here, people would say, why would you say that? What is this about? People here are very acutely aware of what this war is about, what this conflict is about, who started it, who benefits from it, and what the end game is. It's well, the end, the end game, Shay, uh, is that the only country on the face of the planet Earth that actually cares about Ukraine, and I've said it many times, the only country is Russia. We're back with That's more Shay Bells from Moscow on TNT Radio after this break. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The biggest weather news is what is about to happen in Europe. I saw another one of those pictures of Greta Thunberg protesting today. I guess today is like week 300 or something of the climate strike where kids are allowed to be truant and, uh, you know, to protest climate. But she was all bundled up and I was like, well, wait a minute. Looks awfully cold over there. And uh, were there fossil fuels used in the making of those clothes that you have on? But I want to get serious about this. The fact that we are getting such a cold blast that is coming in and this was telegraphed with those big storms and the reason you see what's going on in the weather today is because all the weathermen start screaming and yelling about climate change instead of understanding the same thing happened in 2009 and they went into the deep freeze over there. But it's a serious situation. You know why? Well, first of all, the implications of that is that the United States is going to get very cold. Now, it's cold right now, but I'm talking about what could be really cold weather, severe cold, in the month of January. Because there's probably going to be a lot of snow in the United States during the month of December, especially after the 20th. So what we saw in 2009, 2010 was Europe got it in 2009 in December. And then the U.S. had their famous Snowmageddon. And that occurred later in January and February. It'd be a little bit earlier this year, probably, looking at the overall pattern. But think about this. You're going to get that grid in Europe tested now, and especially Germany. Germany looks like ground zero for the worst weather. With most snow, it's going to be a little bit colder relative to averages up where Greta lives. But Germany is going to be in bad shape here in the next 10 to 20 days. But again, then you have to worry about the rest of the winter. You see what I'm saying? So we're going to have some things push come to shove, so to speak, coming up here over the next couple of weeks. And in fact, the next couple of months, because unlike last winter, I don't think this is backing off this year. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Don't ask me what you know is true. I don't have to tell you. I love your precious heart I I was standing You You were there Two worlds colliding And they could never tear us apart 
Support Act ensures that music workers who need help can access the resources and support they need because we can't do this without them. We could live for a thousand years Cause we all have ways But some of us don't know where. This Oz Music T-shirt day on Thursday the 30th of November Wear and donate now. Focused on the facts. The Aussie Cossack. On today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, welcome back to the Aussie Cossack Show for the final stretch until midnight Australian time, Sydney time, broadcasting uh, to you live on this Saturday night. Congratulations to you. Well done if you've been with us from beginning to end. Uh, it's been a very eventful uh, show as usual. Uh, looking forward uh, to all of your comments in the comments section. Keep them coming on TNTradio.live. Download the TNT Radio app from your Google Play Store or Apple Store. Watch us live on Twitter, Rumble, YouTube, Facebook, uh, Odyssey, and any other platform. Uh, most major platforms. Listen to playbacks on Spotify and uh, the other uh, platforms that you can on TNTRadio.live. We were continuing our show tonight, wrapping up with Shay Bowles, correspondent for Russia Today in Moscow. Uh, very interesting insight into the conflict. Can't say I disagree with anything we said. Before we uh, went to the break, we were discussing the only country that could help or would help or actually cares about Ukraine is actually Russia. And you may, you may from the side think, well, how can that be? Isn't there a war going on? Well, that's the thing. If we can relate... Back to the old days, Shay, when uh, gentlemen used to have bar fights, right? Or if you go further before that, uh, in the days where uh, they would have uh, challenge each other to duels, right? There were certain rules, you know. You would take your glove off and you would uh, slap it on the table and you'd say, I challenge you to a duel and you couldn't shoot the bloke. You had to fight him with a sword or, you know, you had to start at midday and, you know, you couldn't do it at dusk or you couldn't fight on a Sunday or you couldn't shoot at night. You know, all these sort of tradition and, and chivalry about uh, warfare between men. Now, that's mm -hmm. how you explain the behavior of the Russian military from day one. In fact, many units of the Russian military in the start of the special operation were in indeed told not to shoot at Ukrainian troops because they were hoping the Ukrainians would just defect to their side. And in many instances, indeed, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops defected to the Russians. Um, everybody was hopeful uh, after the Crimea uh, scenario, the referendum and the euphoria after Crimea that that would be the case. But of course, uh, it was NATO, wasn't it, that uh, artificially implanted the ideology uh, of hatred towards Russians and they mobilized Ukraine to fight as if Russia was a, uh, you know, a full enemy. Now, Ukraine fighting to the mm -hmm. full, mobilization to the full, women, children, men, everything, the whole country has been put on the altar of NATO, right, for the egos of people like Boris Johnson and Biden and others, uh, whereas Russia is the only adult in the room, restricting itself from what it uses, what types of weapons it deploys. And uh, unfortunately, the West and Western commentators and observers, and you as a strategist would have seen this, the West 
incorrectly interpreted this as some type of weakness. Uh, look at the Russians, they got beaten there, or they withdrew there, or they withdrew from Kherson, or they uh, withdrew from Kiev, or we beat them, we kicked them out of Kiev. As you quite rightly mentioned in the beginning of the hour, uh, all of these uh, reclaiming of territories near the Kharkov region, uh, near the Chernigov region, the uh, Shostko and those northern areas, near Zhitomir, uh, near the airports um, uh, north of Kiev, they weren't beaten, were they, the Russian troops? They simply withdrew. And mm-hmm. uh, they gave. And they were uh, doing good order, particularly in Kherson. It's another fantasy. And you see in BBC and NBC and CNN, oh, you know, the, the when the Russians were pushed out of Kherson, the, a Russian ar- army, essentially, an army group for all intents and purposes, withdrew from Kherson to prevent itself getting surrounded and destroyed potentially or cut off. That it would have to, maybe Russia may have to use really punitive a- actions to save those troops. So they withdrew across the Dnieper to the other side uh, with all of their equipment and men in good order. And then the Ukrainians claimed Zelensky arrives in Kherson, which is a quite pro-Russian city, by the way, or sorry, in, uh, yeah, in, uh, and he, 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 um, he proclaims this as a victory that we've defeated the Russians. When somebody gets up off the bar stool that you were talking about, Simeon, and walks out of the pub, you haven't beaten him in a fight. He's beaten you. Because he's walked away, and you you're left there to claim to your mates that you 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 beat this dude up. You know, I, I took him on, but no, that's not the truth. It didn't happen at Kiev. There was no battle of Kiev. It didn't happen. The the Russians withdrew from Kiev in good order. Uh, they withdrew from uh, Kherson in good order, and they did it. It was an immensely uh, well executed military exercise. In, pre- in prevention, to prevent them being. And they then re-established their lines on the other side of the Dnieper, which there is no way the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians now at the moment are sending men across the river in tiny dinghies into a small area, uh, which they're cap- which they're completely beachheaded in. They're getting hammered by artillery. They're losing hundreds of men. And beyond them are, you know, kilometer after kilometer after kilometer of fixed echelon defenses, just like in Zaporozhye, just like around, uh, you know, the Bradley Square, just like what's happening in Avdivka. There's no way through this for the Ukrainians, but yet this political impetus, keep sending these people out, keep letting them die. The, the big question is, at what stage do the ordinary Ukrainians say, enough of this, enough? Well, at what stage do they say, the man that promised us peace? Zelensky was elected in 19... 19- uh, 2019, on the premise, the very premise that he would end the conflict in Ukraine, he'd end this civil war, he would bring peace and he would challenge corruption. Instead, what he's done is he's brought Armageddon to Ukraine. He's destroyed the country. He's made irreparable damage to it, that Ukraine will never be the same again now. Russia will never hand back the territories that it's declared Russian and the people have voted to remain Russian. They will never, ever be called Ukrainian again. And people say, oh, that's that's impossible. And I, I remind them then of of Crimea. And I say, they say, oh, Crimea is Ukrainian. I say to them, what was Crimea? What was Russia? What was that Crimea in 1953? And they go, Ukrainian. I said, no, it was it was it was wasn't. It was given to the Ukrainian SSR by by Nikita Khrushchev. It was in 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 this, in my view, quite foolish act of of diplomacy between the Ukrainian SSR and the, and the Russians they said well you can have Crimea in a notional thing so this idea like the realities of this conflict are not based on a twitter uh, reality they're not based on some think tank reality as i call it, this think tank mafia that operates in the west people who've never been 
to Russia, can't speak the language, haven't studied uh, Russian history, don't know anything about this place. And from thousands of miles away in a warm room uh, on the edge of Washington, they give these idiotic assessments of what's going to happen next. And they've been wrong most of the time. And the big problem is now is now is the most dangerous vacuum because they know this war is over, essentially. Now, this war could rumble on for a long time yet. I'm not saying it's over, is that the shooting's going to stop. But they know. And what this is about now, it's an election year in the United States as well. No American president is going to allow a, a, a defeat in an election year. They did it in Vietnam. They prolonged the Vietnam War uh, to avoid a uh, defeat. I mean, thousands of American boys died in that ridiculous war. Uh, purely for a political uh, reality. Same thing's happening right now in the US. There's no way they want to accept uh, a, a, a huge strategic defeat, which could impact the very existence of NATO. Remember, NATO is sold like an insurance policy to small Baltic states. Join us. We'll make sure the Russians can't hurt you. They create the fear to sell the product. There is no fear. Russia is a continental landmass. I've I've traveled across this this the vastness of Russia. And believe me, the last thing Russia wants is Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. It doesn't need any more uh, uh vegetable patch. It doesn't need it. So the idea that Russia is embarking on some sort of imperial land grab in, in Europe is an absolute fantasy with zero evidence. But that doesn't matter. The idea is to stimulate radical Russophobic feeling in these small post-Soviet states to make sure that what's good for them, which would be a good relationship with Russia economically, uh, much like Ukraine, what would, would be best for Ukraine would have been to maintain. Uh, Ukraine as, as an agricultural powerhouse, it's perfectly, it's got access to the Black Sea. If Ukraine, if, if Zelensky had have loved his country and wanted real peace and benefit for Ukraine, he would have said, look, we are neutral. We're going to demilitarize our country. We're going to make sure all people can have access to all of their education within our country. We're going to do business with the Russians and we're going to do business with the EU if he was smart if he was intelligence, but instead he was bullied, threatened by the extreme far right with this disproportionate influence. And this is well documented that people like Tiani Buck and these really brutal, nasty individuals who McCain took the stage with in Maidan, he was influenced by them because he's not a politician. He's not a strategician. He's not an educated man. He has no, uh, you know, you know, deep-seated uh, knowledge. He's not a statesman, if you like, Zelensky. He just isn't. And we know he isn't because he's now imprisoned his opposition. He's banned opposition media. Uh, people like, uh, you know, are, 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 you know, increasingly saying, what is this country now? Is it even a democracy anymore? Um, and, you know, you've got this cabal uh, of hollowed out politicians running a country. Uh, how long will the Ukrainian people accept this as their reality? That the next, he's even talking about a new wave of, uh, uh, mobilization, Simeon, I think yesterday I seen him give a speech that there's going to be another wave. And we've seen the first women killed in the trenches. We've seen a pregnant female captured by Russian troops. And the Russian troops say, what are, what are you doing here? And she was terrified. Oh, don't shoot me. This propaganda that the Russians were going to you know, shoot in fact, In fact, she said, don't leave me here. She asked the, yeah. the Russian soldiers, don't leave me here. She was probably relieved that the Russians discovered her. Now you're exactly I mean, it's, absolutely it's right. insane. It's an insanity, you know, and it's becoming so indefensible that under no circumstances can it be defended what's happening in Ukraine. And I think I, I think the reality is that it's really now that we should be focused on as analysts and looking at what happens next is how the West reverses out of this. And that's why 
the Middle East is so important to me, and I think, in how it shifts the gaze, it shifts the need to keep supporting Zelensky, and it opens this vacuum where people like Zeluzhny, his top military man, can say, look, this guy's cracked, we need to get him out. We've seen Zeluzhny's uh, right-hand man, his assistant, assassinated uh, two weeks ago. We've seen Zelensky incrementally trying to uh, deplatform Zelensky's people from the government. So underneath the surface, I think, in Ukraine, you're seeing a power struggle now, which is really what we should be watching. Absolutely. Look, the uh, future is uh, very bleak, and it's just a question of when will they stop. 19 million Ukrainians remain from an original number of 42 million pre-war. Uh, it's criminal that uh, the population has dropped significantly. That, of course, includes 6 million who left Ukraine to go to Russia, millions more who went westwards to go into European countries, and then, of course, millions who are in the territories which Russia has liberated, and now those people are part of the Russian Federation. So what remains of the population? You know, really, it is a sad situation. When Putin says it's a tragedy, it's a tragedy uh, for Ukraine because Russia did not want this. We did everything possible to stave this off, and NATO did everything possible to make sure that this would occur. All I can say is uh, history will judge the Russian military on its actions, and we will uh, uh, be sure uh, that Russia will be judged uh, as being a country who set an example to the world of what it means to fight a honorable uh, special military operation, not a war, again. And that's why you're right, the situation in the Middle East with Israel, the way they're fighting Gaza and annihilating uh, just blocks and apartment buildings, almost like dem controlled demolition style, flattening whole cities, flattening cities. Uh, when people look at that, they realize, well, the Russians aren't that bad. And the Ukrainians are also realizing it. Deep down inside, the Ukrainians know that the Russians are the only country that will help them. Uh, it's a matter of time. We need, we need, what we need to do is have some Western powers. And this is where maybe perhaps Australia could play a role. It's a shame that Australia is so far up uh, Americans' agenda that it can't speak independently. And now Australia could play a pivotal role by saying, no, enough is enough. Uh, Ukraine needs to uh, stop this fighting. NATO needs to stop sending weapons. The world needs to, uh, accept the fact that those regions are part of Russia. Russia's never going to give them up or hand them over or betray its own people. I think it's quite clear to the rest of the world that uh, there is, uh, like you said, a disproportionate level of uh, Western uh, far-right Nazi extremists, and when I mean Western, I mean Western Ukraine, who are dictating to the rest of the Ukrainian population how they should be and how they should act. Now, if they don't figure this out quickly and stop Zelensky, and reach out to Russia and say, okay, sorry, enough is enough. Well, what's going to happen is Russia will keep going, and it won't be a question of uh, the Dnieper River. It'll be a question of uh, you know, the Polish border. And then how will Europe react when Russian tanks, when Russian bases are directly on the border with Poland? And that's the reality that, that the, the, the European Union needs to understand, that... Uh, they've forced Russia into a very powerful position, more missile production, more drone production than ever, ever before. The Russian military has gone through this renaissance. It's now a proper fighting force. You may be good on paper, but unless your troops have experience, uh, then it's it's uh, uh, it's unknown as to how they'll perform in the battlefield. The Russians are showing that they can perform very well. Shebaos, uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight. We're running out of time now with uh, 30 seconds to go before the news, but we look forward to seeing you back with us on TNT Radio, uh, reporting live from Moscow. And our regards to all of our colleagues and uh, 
friends and ideological allies in Moscow at the Russia Today and uh, generally uh, the Russian people, please pass on to them uh, that they have a lot of friends and supporters in the West who look at this situation sanely and uh, hopefully uh, Russia will prevail shortly. Uh, you've been listening to Aussie Cossack Live on a Saturday night, TNT Radio. Congratulations if you've been through us to the end. We'll see you next Saturday.